Colditz is absolutely buried in our national mythology. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a proper noun in itself. You know, this place feels like a Colditz. Everyone knows what you mean. And the story is familiar to us, we think. It's a story of brave British men with moustaches, you know, digging their way out of this, this sort of huge Gothic castle and generally sort of keeping the fight going uh, inside. That's what the board game is about. That's what the black and white TV series is about. But actually, the story of Colditz turned out to be very, very different from that. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name is Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today's podcast is a fascinating chat with Ben McIntyre on his new book, Colditz, and then also, towards the end of our discussion, I'll ask him a number of questions about his previous books, in particular about his work on the KGB spy Oleg Gordievsky and then the Cambridge spy Kim Philby. Now, we heard last week about Christopher Marlowe, the Tudor playwright, who was probably a spy whilst at Cambridge, and so the university has previous. Oleg Gordievsky is the subject of Ben's book, The Spy and the Traitor. This is the brilliant story of a man who can make the claim to have changed history. Now, there is a strong opinion by some that espionage doesn't really change policy, fascinating though it is, but in Gordievsky's case, that is categorically not the case. Kim Philby rose to senior positions at MI6, where he worked for more than 20 years, and it was only in January 1963 that he was finally unmasked as a Soviet agent. He was an archetype of the establishment. Born in the Raj, British India, educated at public school, Westminster, and Cambridge University. Philby's exposure as a double agent working for the Russians sent shockwaves through the British establishment and caused serious harm to the relationship between the British and the American intelligence agencies. His treachery and defection has since inspired many books and movies, and if any of you have not yet read John le Carre's novel, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, do so now. The link is in the show notes. Ben McIntyre wrote a wonderful book about Philby, and his seemingly great friend Nicholas Elliott, entitled A Spy Among Friends, so that comes recommended also. That's just a bit of context for those of you who are unaware. We also briefly mentioned the Hollywood movie Operation Mincemeat, based on Ben's book, which is the story of how the British fooled the Germans into thinking the invasion of Sicily in World War II would actually take place elsewhere, by planting a dead body on the shores of the Spanish coast, where it would be found containing fake documents to put the Nazis off the scent. Anyway, before all that, we talk about Colditz, where the Germans sent those POWs that were the most troublesome. It's a story that may be familiar, as you heard from Ben there, but in writing his new book, Ben has found new stories that were hiding in plain sight. So I do hope you enjoy our chat. Please do subscribe, and I'll hand you over to me, talking to Ben McIntyre. Ben McIntyre, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Great pleasure to be here. Um, now, actually, I don't know if I should be welcoming you because I'm a, I'm in the offices of Penguin. Um, but thank you for your time. And we're here to talk about your new book, Colditz. I, I'm assuming that's the title because I've only seen a PDF. The full title is Colditz Prisoners of the Castle. Okay. Um, yeah. So it's the uh, that's that's the new one. Wonderful. Okay. So I've read it, and um, it's it's 
I hadn't read the story uh, in great detail. I'd, I'd watched the TV series, I think, in the, from the 70s and, and played the board game with my dad. Um, but it, it's an even more extraordinary story um, in, in, in the book than, I, than I'd imagined. And But I think the way you've done it, it's very interesting. And I, I wanted to talk about um, sort of the, the two main themes I got coming out of the, the book. Um, and the first is is the reason why they're all there. And it's the uh, I'm gonna I, I, I'm gonna have a go at German uh, the Deutsch uh, Deutschfeindlich yeah have I got right. that right yeah 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 um, so this is this is um, this is being insufficiently friendly to the <laughs> to the Nazis who are not known to be friendly themselves but it's fascinating isn't it I mean it, only the Germans would come up with a word for insufficient friendliness I mean it's um and I'm slightly parodying them there um, yes I mean that Kolditz was the place for people who other prisoners who had either tried to escape from other prison camps or who had made themselves so intolerable uh, that the Germans felt they had to move them all into one place. It turned out to be a spectacularly bad idea because if you put all the bad boys together in one camp, they behave extremely badly and they egg each other on. And that's what gave Kolditz, in a way, its very particular atmosphere was that they, these were almost handpicked by the Germans for their recalcitrance. Which, which of course makes them fascinating characters. But no, to address your, your first question, I mean, I approached this project with some trepidation because Kolditz is absolutely buried in our national mythology. I mean, it's, it, is, it is a proper noun in itself. You know, this place feels like a Kolditz. Everyone knows what you mean. And the story is familiar to us, we think. It's a story of brave British men with moustaches, you know, digging their way out of this this sort of huge Gothic castle and generally sort of keeping the fight going uh, inside. That's what the board game is about. That's what the black and white TV series is about. But actually, the story of Colditz turned out to be very, very different from that. It, it's not a story. I mean, it's partly a story of daring do. It is partly a sort of, sort of boy's own paper, sort of japes and it's all the game. But actually, there's a much darker, a much more interesting story to Colditz. It turns out on on digging and, and there hasn't been a book about Colditz for 20 years. And our own perceptions of history have changed radically in the last 20 years. And the real story of Colditz, I found, was about class and race and sexuality and a particular kind of madness. Because if you lock people up for five years with absolutely no idea whether they're ever going to get out, they, that a particular kind of lunacy sort of takes hold. And, and what, the, what they did inside Colditz was to sort of recreate the world that they'd come from. These were upper middle class, usually public school educated, white middle class men. And they recreated a kind of interwar world inside Colditz, complete with theatrical performances and bridge clubs and, and societies and exclusive. I mean, it was incredibly socially stratified. Colditz. There was even, believe it or not, a Bullingdon club in Colditz, which was one of the most bizarre discoveries, was that even inside Colditz, there was a kind of rigid social stratification going on. And there were, um, we, we, can, we can deal with class straight away then, because um, the, the Bullingdon club that they set up, and they actually call it the Bullingdon yeah. club, don't they? Yeah, yeah they yeah. have their own mess. I mean, and you had to have been a member of the Bullingdon club. It's extraordinary. Um, but there are also a couple of communists there and I, I was reading it thinking if, if there was going to be one thing to turn me over to communism it would be a Bullingdon club in a in a prisoner <laughs> of war camp. Well I found that fascinating too and also 
slightly contradicting what I've just said, external factors were influencing life inside Kolditz. So you, you had, in a way, the battle between the communists and there were people of the extreme right in Kolditz too. Believe me, I mean, there were some, I'm afraid, particularly among the French, there were some ferocious anti-Semites. There were Petanists. There were people who were, you know, sympathetic to to the right. And so you have this kind of ideological battle, in a way, taking place inside Kolditz that prefigures the Cold War. You know, that prefigures the war itself. So you've got a kind of rolling political debate going at the same time, which is fascinating. And of course, these are most of them well-educated people. They are people used to dealing with ideas. So you've got a kind of an intellectual sort of conflict taking place inside the prison walls, as well as this class conflict going on. And there is a conflict among the classes. I mean, again, something that I had never realised and you'd never have got from the board game was that although this, this was an officer's prison, this was a place where officers, and that's hence they had certain privileges, but it was the officers themselves under the Geneva Convention had ordinary soldiers, privates, also prisoners, to work for them. They had servants. So, so you know, people to polish their boots and clean out their rooms and cook their food. So you had this extraordinary kind of social chasm running right through the middle of cold. It's right from the word go. And at one point, the orderlies, as they were known, the ordinary prisoners who were looking after the officers, went on strike, said, we're not doing this anymore. We, we, we're not going to continue looking after and the they officers. And they would only take orders from the Germans, they would which I, take I was laughing out loud. <laughs> it's extraordinary, isn't it? But again, it's a sign of how the sort of the sort of things that were happening in the outside world, the growth of sort of, of the left, the sort of socialist ideas, the growth of unionism, if you like, were also infiltrating into cultures. And I found that utterly fascinating. I mean, you know, the, the, the revolt, the rebellion of the orderlies, as they called it, was put down pretty quickly and the orderlies were moved out. And of course, the orderlies were not allowed to escape. That was another element of it. They were not permitted to try to get out. Um, and indeed, even when they were swapped out toward, you know, towards, uh, you know, in the middle part of the war, there was a program to exchange ordinary prisoners from each side. Uh, Douglas Bader, the most famous occupant of Colditz, refused to let his orderly go home. Said, he, "No, you're not. You're staying here. You're my lackey." Is it that that is because he he comes out of this as a deeply unpleasant man? Yeah, I mean, I didn't have much time for Douglas Bader. I mean, although I was sort of conflicted about him. I mean, in lots of ways, he was a complete bastard. I mean, mm. he was he was brutally cruel to his orderlies. He was arrogant. He was very difficult to deal with. He was, on the other hand, spectacularly brave, and in later life did a huge amount for people with disabilities, as your listeners will know. You know, he um. He lost both his legs in a flying accident. He was the most famous soldier, really, of the entire Second World War. He was almost as famous among the Germans as he was uh, with the British. And he was shot down, lost um, one of his prosthetic legs bailing out of the plane before he was captured by the Germans. And this is a mark of just how famous he was. The Germans then contacted British intelligence and said, Douglas Bader needs another leg. So the British actually flew out and parachuted in an extra false leg for Douglas Bader in an operation called, uh, with a fantastic lack of originality, called Operation Leg. <laughs> um, the, the, the class side of things and, and the, the, the final word that Bader has to his, um, to his orderly, um, which it I won't repeat. It's unprintable. It is a, unprintable. In a, in a family programme. When, when reading that, I was thinking, oh, what a shame it wasn't reversed. The other <laughs> yeah, way around, that exactly. would have been far better. But anyway. Well, he got his revenge, um, Alex Ross, who was, who was Bader's um, orderly, because 
One of the great resources for the Colditz story is in the Imperial War Museum, which contains thousands of hours of recordings made in the late 80s and early 90s. Pretty much everybody who'd been in Colditz was interviewed by the Imperial War Museum, and it's the most wonderful repository. And Alex Ross's recording is in there, and that's when he gets his revenge on Bada. That's where all of that, that's oh, where I you see. really learn about what that relationship was really like. Um, yes, and yes, that, yeah. that the final moment is quite an eye-opener. Um, so you mentioned race, and <clears throat> there's one individual there who, um, who was Indian nationalist, who's, who's, who sounds like a fascinating character, but was really had a lot of bad luck and, and was treated terribly, wasn't he? He was treated very badly. He was the only non-white soldier in Colditz, uh, and his story has never been told, I think, I'm afraid, because he doesn't fit into our mythology of Colditz. And he was an extraordinary man, Barendranath Mazumdar. He was, um, he was the only Indian officer in the Royal Army Medical Corps. He was captured at Dunkirk, taken to Colditz, where, as you rightly say, he, he, he suffered appalling racism, but not from the Germans, from the British. I mean, he was treated absolutely as a second-class citizen, mocked, told he wasn't allowed to escape because his skin was the wrong colour. He'd have been picked up immediately, which might have been true, actually, but it was nonetheless an astonishingly racist thing to to insist on. And his story is quite remarkable. I don't want to give it away too much, no. but it's, I mean, it's a story of remarkable heroism, actually. And he gets out. He gets, I don't want to give it all away about how he did it, but it's its its one of the many untold stories of Colditz. And there, who would have known it after all this time that there are, but it's true of often this kind of area of history that that the mythology that we inherited, the sort of black and white stories, the Sunday afternoon, TV, film, damn busters and The Great Escape and so on, they all they all follow a sort of certain template, you know, that, 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 that this is a story of simple moral black and white, you know, goodies and baddies, heroes and villains, and, and there's not much in between. Of course, what I hope what Colditz asks is is the question of what would you do? Because the whole of human nature is in there and there are people of astonishing heroism and, and, and integrity and ingenuity and there are others... <laughs> more like me and others who, who are sort of somewhere in the middle. They're trying to do the good, best thing, most of them, and some do the wrong thing. There are traitors, there are quislings in there. There are, there, we are all made of human clay. And the idea that somehow everybody in Colditz was a, was a born hero uh, with a bristling moustache is not true. Well, the, there's one chap who, I, I'm not sure if I was meant to, um, have sympathy for, but I did, um, and that is the um, the the main jailer Eggers, who mm. I really warmed to throughout the book, and I don't think the British did. No, no, he was an extraordinary character. I mean, he was he ended up as sort of head of security at Colditz, so he was responsible for trying to stop them escape, and he was also a sort of he was an Anglophile, which is so extraordinary. He'd been a teacher in Cheltenham before the war, and he loved the British, and he was you know loved British beer and he did his thesis on Victorian schooling. I mean, he was sort of an extraordinary figure, really. And he was the one who collected all the artefacts of Colditz. So he was really the archivist of Colditz as well. And he was fascinated by their attempts to escape. He was very punctilious. But he was also a very civilised man. You know, he was not a Nazi. Um, he, mm, he never joined the Nazi party. Never joined the Nazi party. And he, but he was a German nationalist. He wanted to win the war. But he was an old-fashioned... Prussian military professional, really, in lots of ways. So he doesn't fit our, our sort of... There were lots of unpleasant Nazis in the officers' mess in Colditz. Don't get me wrong. They weren't all 
saints and nor was Eggers. But he nonetheless was a man who tried to work by the rules and he tried to apply the Geneva Convention. And the Brits sort of treated him with withering disdain and tried to get him to lose his temper the whole time. And he'd been a school teacher, so he, he sort of he believed he was able to deal with the unruly elements. And like all sort of slightly pompous school teachers, he, he was often wise after the event. But in the end, he was a decent man who ended up spending 10 years in a Soviet gulag because a Soviet prison camp because he had was considered to have been a Nazi, which he wasn't. So he spent longer as a prisoner than any of the prisoners that were ever in his care. So he's an interestingly complicated character. And I too ended up feeling a certain sort of slightly resentful sympathy for him. Mm, it, it's, he, he's, he's constantly disappointed by the British and the Dutch in his charge. The Dutch are sort of polite, but then they let themselves down. They, they let themselves down. <laughs> they did that thing, you know, they let the school down, yes. they let their team down, but most of all, they let themselves down. No, they, the Dutch appeared to be very polite while, while escaping all the time. The Brits, he couldn't get over the fact that the Brits inside Coldest were so much ruder than the lovely people he'd known in Cheltenham, who'd all been tremendously polite and inviting him for beers and so on. And he just couldn't get over how, how, how mean they were, really. So one, um, the, the, the mental health which you've mentioned is, it, it runs throughout the book, really. And it, and, it, it, and it does make you think that for all the escapes that were successful, many were not. Mm. And, and just the toll that it took on, on, on the prisoners. I mean, it's, it's, it's tragic in, in some cases, isn't mm. it? It's, 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 it just doesn't matter thinking about, you know, life. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting sort of, it's a particular sort of imprisonment. I mean, in some ways, because it was an officer's camp, it, there were certain elements of it that were much more comfortable than they would have been in an ordinary stalag, for example. And yet it, it was a prison without end because nobody ever knew when or if they were ever going to get out of it. I and mean, if you're a prisoner in an ordinary prison, you have a sentence and you can count down the sentence and you know that at some point you're going to be liberated. These people had no idea whether they would ever be liberated or whether they would all just be murdered in the end. So, so that adds an extra element to it. And it was, it was fantastically boring because, I mean, again, that's rather against the myth of Coldish, which is frightfully entertaining all the time, never a dull moment. Actually, it was tough as hell because officers were not allowed to work. They weren't allowed to do any labour. That was, again, part of the Geneva Convention. So they kind of... They sat around planning to escape, but a lot of them didn't do that either. A lot of them didn't really want to escape. A lot of them knew that escaping was going to be very dangerous and probably fail, and they might end up dead. And they they weren't compelled to escape, no. to attempt to escape, no. were they? It, there was it no was, duty to escape. No, one often thinks that this sort of it was, it's the order is to escape, but that's no, not that was true the at myth. All, and in it? fact, yeah. there's a character in The Great Escape who says, you know, it's every every officer's mm. duty to escape. It was not. There was, it was nowhere where you required to do this, but many did. And, and everyone pretty much bar one or two was happy to contribute to the sort of escape industry, as it were, to sort of help to act as watch lookouts, to manufacture, to help make disguises and so on. And that is half the fun of Coldest is that kind of the extraordinary kind of community that built up around how to get out of the damn place. But it, it, not everybody was involved in that. And, and you definitely weren't required to. And indeed, by the end of the time in Colditz, the senior British officer was actively discouraging people from doing it. Because by that point, it was you were likely to end up dead because the whole atmosphere of the war had changed. Hitler had passed the commando order. If you were caught out of uniform in Germany, you were quite likely just to be killed. So, so it, the atmosphere gets darker and it changes over time.
the the proportions of of um, foreign um, officers in in the prison. I mean, the, it starts off as quite multinational, isn't mm. it? But then then it's become solely a British prison. Um, British and Commonwealth. British, British and Commonwealth. British and Australian and New Zealand right. and Canadian and so on. Um, but the, 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 the French and the Dutch have proportionally quite a lot of success. I was trying to tot up the numbers. Yes, it's quite interesting. The sort <laughs> of, and indeed, they totted up the numbers. Everyone, you know, it was a kind of escapers league. It was one of the ways they got through the boredom of the day was to kind of compete with each other. So there were, there were alliances in theory between the nations. But like all alliances, there were also kind of great rivalries. Um, and the Brits were, you know, I, I won't say they were enraged when the French managed to carry out their first escapes, but they didn't like it very much. They, 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 they thought they should be the first ones out. So they all spurred each other on. And it was, um, I found that fascinating, the way that sort of pre-war prejudices about other nations were carried into Colditz. And so there's an awful lot of sort of national stereotyping going on at all points of the compass around here you know everyone is sort of saying oh you know the beastly belgians all they ever do is lie around eating and you know th th it's all completely stereotyped and the british are sort of lazy and feckless and unreliable in the eyes of the french and so on and all of that is is it's both good fun but also kind of it's also very instructive i think about a certain sort of view of the world that they carried into cold it's with them and the poles were very popular weren't they the poles were much loved because the poles were the Poles treated the Germans with absolute disdain. I mean, they, although they themselves were in considerable jeopardy because, of course, Poland was not a signatory to the Geneva Convention. And from the German point of view, they were very lucky to be in an officer's camp. So they were treated slightly differently. Um, and the Poles were extraordinary. I mean, they were absolutely indefatigable escapers. Um, they also brewed their own kind of booze in the, in the attics of, of Colditz, which added to their popularity, I think. Uh, the the um, there aren't many women in the story, obviously, um, but those that are are hugely uh, admirable roles. And uh, there's this sort of seventy-year-old um, Mrs. Walker, yeah. who's just uh, this story is extraordinary, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, again, I got to Colditz thinking, well, this is going to be a man. This is a book about men, but it's not. Strangely, and, and Mrs. Mrs. M, as they called her, that was her, her Polish name was Maskarovka, so she was um, she was known as Mrs. M. She'd married a Pole. She was from Fife. She was she was a doughty Scotswoman who had in fact worked for British intelligence, and she was in charge of the escape routes through Warsaw. And again, her story's never been told before because she sort of doesn't fit into the kind of narrative that we're used to. But but when these soldiers got out of Colditz, as they as you have rightly pointed out occasionally, but not very often did, many of them headed straight for Mrs. M because she was the way to get you out of, out of Poland, out of Nazi-occupied Poland. She was astonishingly brave. Um, and she ran the escape routes and they absolutely adored her. She became a sort of mythological figure inside Colditz. I mean, she was already in her 60s or even 70s by the time this was happening. Um, and she would throw these sort of extraordinary sort of secret dinner parties in Warsaw, where everyone would toast the king and, um, you know, she would say, well, we're all going to get out of here. We're all going to get out of here. There's no problem, you know. And then she went into hiding. So her own story is, is remarkable, yeah. She's not the only woman, though. I mean, there are... The other one I thought was absolutely fascinating was a character called... Um, well, her name was Irma Wernicke. She was a German um, in the town of Kolditz. She was the assistant to the dentist in Kolditz. And another wonderful character called Checo Chalupka, who was a Czech fighter pilot, a very debonair, louche character who ran the black market in Colditz. 
contrived to sort of start a love affair with Irma while on the train into Colditz. He met her in the carriage where he was sitting manacled with a, with a soldier on either side, but managed to kind of flirt with her. And his way of continuing this relationship was that he would, and this, but this may be partly myth, I don't know, but certainly he describes it and others did too, he would chip his teeth with a rock every so often in order to be taken to the dentist in Colditz, where he would bribe the dentist to stay out of the way for a little while, while he had a lovely time with Irma. But Irma then turned out to be a, a fully committed anti-Nazi resistance operative. She was she was her father was head of the Nazi party in in, Kolditz, in the town of Colditz, but she began supplying Checo with information about troop displacements, you know, who was in charge of the local Nazi party, which troops were coming in, which were going out. And this was information that was of vital importance that was being sent back in secret coded letters from Colditz back to MI6 back in London. So this, you know, so there is this sort of extraordinary sort of dental spy connection at the heart of the story with this woman at the heart of it. Mm, it's wonderful. Um, I, I love the bureaucratic um, uh, set up with the escape committee for the for the British. And then there's an anti escape board for the Germans. It's, 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 it's just fantastic. It really is. But I wondered, was there a sort of acknowledgement on the part of the Germans that the we you know, we've we've gathered together all these disobedient officers, they're going to try to escape. So there was almost a, um, an allowance for it. I don't know if there was an allowance exactly. I think there was a, again, it's a slightly sort of bureaucratic cast of mind, isn't it? That thinks, well, if we've got tricky people, what we need to do is put them in what we think is the, you know, the most secure place. And then we'll have all the, all the naughty people in the, in the same place and we can, we can really intensify the security, which in truth they did. Um, but initially, of course, Colditz was the worst possible place to try and keep prison because it was it was an ancient 11th century Gothic castle with 700 rooms and and riddled with holes. You know, there were tunnels in and out of it. There were there were secret hiding places. There were rafters. There were attics. You know, there was, it was actually, as, as Eggers himself said, this is a terrible place to try and keep prisoners. It's a much better idea to put them all in a flat space surrounded by barbed wire. That way we can keep an eye on them. So actually Colditz, while it was a great symbol of kind of high security prison, was actually a, a useless place to try and keep people locked up. Um, I, 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 was, um, I was trying to think of my favorite sort of gadget or, or a piece of escape equipment. And I think it was the, I think it was the piece of equipment, the, this aircraft that they built that they didn't actually use in the end. Mm. But, I just could not get over um, how just creative all these these prisoners were. It's, it's just extraordinary. It wasn't that extraordinary. I mean, that was towards the end, they designed and built a glider that was going to be reassembled on the roof and then literally catapulted into the air and across the river with two escapers in it. And, and the building of it, I mean, there's a design for it in the book, which is absolutely extraordinary. I mean, it was made out of 600 individual pieces of wood, mattress covers soaked in porridge, which then tightened to create the, the, the sort of skin of the glider. And it was ready to fly. I mean, it was ready to go and, and the war intervened and ended before it could be used. I have a slight suspicion it might well have crashed immediately on, on takeoff because aerodynamically there were bits of it that were slightly unclear, I think. Um, it might have just plummeted off the end of the roof and gone straight down. But but no, I mean, it was the ingenuity. I mean, in a way, I think that was the way of dealing with 
the kind of sheer crushing tedium of being there was to think of these complicated ways of getting out and the other character that I loved is was one who was not in Colditz but but was operating from London, uh, MI9. Uh, some of your listeners, I'm sure all of them will know of MI5 and MI6. MI9 was the escape and um, organisation back in London, and a particular character there, Christopher Clayton Hutton, Clutty, uh, was the inventor of the great escape gadgetry industry. Really, was what it became. And and you know he's he's straight out of James Bond. He's Q, and he spends his entire life working out how to insert a compass into a walnut and then send it to to Colditz or how to secrete maps and currency in the handles of badminton rackets and have them shipped via via sort of Copenhagen to London I mean but to, to Colditz so so there was a lot of stuff coming into Colditz that was intended for the for the escapers to use and it became part of a kind of in a way it was much more than the sum of its things if you see what I mean it was a kind of way for the prisoners to know that the outside world was willing them to get out and doing its best to help them well it's an it's an extraordinary story um now whilst i have you and and um i'll put a link in all the show notes for uh, for our readers and listeners to be able to uh, access the book um but whilst i have you i want to talk a little bit more about some of your previous books sure. because um i know our listeners are, um will be familiar with some of the stories here um First of all, I wanted to talk a little bit about Oleg Gordievsky, mm. um, the subject of uh, the spy, um, well, him, him being the spy and then the traitor being the American, um, American traitor. But Oleg Gordievsky, he's a fascinating man. Um, I, I was talking to my father about him because he actually met Oleg Gordievsky when he was in the army. Gordievsky officers in, in the British Army of the Rhine met him to talk um, a little bit about the Russian counterparts that they were dealing with. And they, my father asked him, what job would you want to do if you could in Britain? And Gordievsky's answer was he'd like to be the head of the BBC, which I thought <laughs> having read a very illuminating answer. It would be a very different BBC, I can tell you. Um, yeah, no, it would, it would have been a fascinating appointment. He's an extraordinary man. I mean, he's still... I don't want to give it away for your readers, but he is still in the safe house that he has lived in ever since uh, his exfiltration from Moscow. And indeed, I, I called him at one point during lockdown and I said, Oleg, how are you doing? I mean, I'm still in fairly regular touch with him. I said, how are you? He said, I don't know why everyone is complaining about lockdown. He said, I have been in lockdown for 35 years. And that is true. I mean, he, he lives a lot. He is imprisoned by his own history. He cannot leave the house. He's under very, very tight security. He can't leave the house. Uh, not not without his bodyguard the bodyguard lives in the house you know he is he is behind an electronic wall of security he is still considered to be a target and he is a target you know i mean he's he's well into his 80s now but but you know he post Skripal, i guess yeah yeah, yeah well, although and, and in a way different from Skripal, oleg and i probably would say this wouldn't i but oleg gordievsky made a huge difference mm. i mean Skripal was producing useful intelligence but it was nothing like what Gordievsky had a tap straight into the heart of the Kremlin. He was not only able to tell the West what the Kremlin was doing, but he was able to tell the West, and, and his information was going straight to the Oval Office and straight to Downing Street. He was able to tell the West what the KGB was thinking of doing. Now, if you can do that, you, you have an absolute whip hand in, in intelligence. If you, can, if you know with certainty 
what the enemy's about to do, you've, you've really got him. And so Oleg is one of the very few spies in history who, who made a strategic difference. He really did. I mean, it's an odd thing to say because I've written so much about spies, but the spies don't always change history. Sometimes they're just fascinating. But Oleg is different. He's both fascinating and he, he really does materially change our history. Yeah, he's an extraordinary man. Um, now, moving on to another spy who I think one could argue did change history, um, Kim Philby. Mm. And I wondered first, was um, Kim Philby and, and Nicholas Elliott, his, his great friend, oh, is there still uh, uh, the, the repercussions of, of his betrayal still felt in, in MI6 today, do you think? I think they are, actually. I mean, I think it is, you know, it was it was the source of such soul searching when it happened. I mean, MI6 could not quite believe that somebody who seemed to be in every way perfect. You know, he, he was a brilliant intelligence officer. He'd been to the right schools. He wore the right tie. He'd been to Cambridge. You know, he was he looked perfect and he behaved perfectly. He was completely invisible. Couldn't believe that one of their own could really have have turned against them. And, and Nicholas Elliott, his great friend, is the great, was the great victim of all of that. I mean, he had been Phil, Philby's friend and close protector for, for two decades. And the discovery that the entire time he, he was being betrayed was shattering for him. And that's the core of that story, really. But Philby does make a difference. And it's interesting, it's ironically, in fact, one of the impacts of his escape and, and so on, his betrayal, was that MI6 never again recruited in the same way. That that oh, he, I mean, Philby, not intentionally, but blew away the old school Thai techniques. You, MI5 and MI6 do not recruit in that way anymore. It's not. It doesn't happen at the bar of whites. Come on, old chap, why don't you join the Secret Service? It's a far more professional uh, setup than that. And that, in a way, is one of Philby's legacies. He, you know, he 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 accidentally changed the culture of British intelligence forever. And partly because this story still is a kind of still is a, a source of deep anxiety, I think, you know, and, and there are those within the service today who who are very sensitive to the charge. And I, perhaps it's not even a charge, but the suggestion in my book, which I firmly believe that Philby was effectively allowed to escape, that the door was left open for him by Nicholas Elliott because they didn't want to have a trial back in London. I mean, that much we know. They they did not want Philby put on trial because that would have been cataclysmically embarrassing. So I think they were agnostic between whether or not he drank himself to death in Beirut uh, or whether he escaped. Um, but there are, as I say, there are still people in the service who find that thought very hard to, to haul on. Well, in, in, your, in the afterword of your book, John le Carré writes about um, an interview that he conducted with Elliot. And it's... It's very interesting because I then read the um, the Pigeon Tunnel, which I think came out a couple of years after, and he sort of slightly expands on on his afterward, where he mentions that Philby was uh, had an addiction to deceit, and I wondered if that was something that isn't that something that all spies have? They're all somehow are they addicted to to deception? I think secrecy is a sort of drug. Um, it is highly intoxicating. Um, it is very toxic and it is pretty addictive. I think once you are part of a secret world, it, can, it confers the kind of ruthless opportunities for private power, really. And I think 
once you, I mean, Philby himself described the KGB actually as being an elite force. And there is a sort of, particularly I think for Brits, there is a sort of clubbable element to the whole thing that is, is part of it that makes it very, very addictive. And it, I think it's a very hard thing to stop doing. I mean, once, you, once you've lived in the excitement of not being the person that you seem to be, I mean, that is, that is in a way, it's a fantasy for everybody. Every time everyone sees a James Bond movie or, or indeed reads a novel, you, you enter into a, an imaginary world where you are someone else. And for spies, that is a kind of reality. They are living a double reality. We all would love to think that, you know, we are not necessarily the people we appear to be on the outside. Well, spies take that to a kind of extreme degree. And I think, it, I think David Cornwall was absolutely right about Kim Philby. I think long after the excitement of the communist ideology had worn off for him, there remained the romance and the secret excitement of knowing a little bit more than the band standing next to you in the bus queue. And that, that was and still is an extremely alluring and addictive sensation. Do you, do you think, because he, he wrote an autobiography um, and so much has been written about Philby and, and yet your book, which, which came out relatively recently, had more to say. Do you think there's still more to come from the from the Philby story? Oh, I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's considerably more. I mean, the actual the the KGB archives on Philby have not been properly released. I mean, they've been uh, they were combed by a kind of pet Soviet historian who was allowed access to the bits that reflected well on the on the Soviet Union. But the full archive has never been found. It's never been. It's there. It's. I mean, it's huge. Agent Stanley. I mean, he was the most important spy they had in the West. No, I mean, there will undoubtedly be more to say, and and that'll be absolutely fascinating. I mean, God, I, I'm first in line if Putin decides to open it up. I mean, and, and you know, this is a story that the current Russian regime is very keen on. You know, they like the Philby story. They've just renamed another square in Moscow after Kim Philby. There's a Kim Philby Museum. You know, they. This is a story they like. So. I would be very surprised if at some point they, they don't authorise uh, 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 another book about Philby. Now, perhaps like Philby's own book, that will be deceptive. I mean, Philby's book, um, My Secret War, is a brilliant, brilliant book because it is, it is absolutely stuffed with lies, brilliant deceptions that Philby has sort of cooked up. So it's, it purports to be a memoir. What it really is, is, a, is another brilliant piece of deception. Uh, uh, that is that addiction to deceit, isn't it? And so um, another uh, wonderful book of yours, Operation Mincemeat, been turned into a movie. Um, what did you think of the film? Well, I, I loved it. I mean, <laughs> I'm probably the last person who could give you an objective view on that. Um, it was a strange experience seeing what is quite a complicated story. I mean, the, the, the detail of, of Operation Mincemeat is really quite, it's quite intense. Obviously, for a film, you have to simplify. You know, you need to create a sort of emotional core at the heart of, of the story. And I think I think Michelle Ashford, the screenwriter, and, and John Madden, the director, did a brilliant job of that while being faithful to the essence of the story. And what I think is what I loved about the film is that it's it, it manages to be many things at once. It is both an adventure story and a spy story and a war story, but it's also a romance and it's a comedy. I mean, there are there are some very funny bits in the film and that 
is also very true to the reality because the people framing up Operation Mincemeat, this this idea that you would get a dead body and ship, you know, equip it with false papers and a false identity and ship it ashore in Spain where the Germans would find it. The people conducting that operation knew that it was absurd. I mean, they were completely alive to the comic aspects of all of it. Um, and they were themselves sort of frustrated novelists, most of them. So they were sort of dreaming up this plot as if they were novelists. So they created a great backstory for everybody. And the film captures that quite brilliantly. I think it's, um, look, I know how it ends. I probably know better than anyone else in the country how it ends, but even I find the ending still both exciting and, and rather moving. Great stuff. Well, well, Ben, um, thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you um, and best of luck with Colditz. Well, thank you so much. It's been a huge pleasure. Coming up, I've got chats with Max Hastings on the Cuban Missile Crisis, Peter Stothard on Crassus, the Roman statesman and general, played by Laurence Olivier in the Kubrick movie Spartacus. So I do hope you subscribe. Shortly, I'll be releasing a bonus episode of content to coincide with Black History Month. In the meantime, thank you and good night.